very good morning, and uh, today we're going to be thinking about loving the weak. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 together. Let's pray for God's help as we come to his word. Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would be growing us in knowledge of you, strengthening our conscience that we know how to live rightly in the light of the gospel. But help us, Lord, to know things rightly, not being puffed up in pride, but deepening in love for you and for those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, is it okay for Christians to participate in the practices of other religions? Is it okay for Christians to participate in the practices of other religions? Uh, some years back, I attended a funeral. Um, it was a Buddhist funeral, and so the, uh, the wake and the funeral had the normal kind of Buddhist Taoist practices, including bowing down to the ancestors. Uh, to show love and respect, my wife and I attended the funeral, and as is often the case, there was some pressure on us to participate uh, in the ceremonies. We took a stand, and we didn't participate. We chose to show our love and respect in other ways, but we thought it was important to show that we were Christians. Now, many of us who are listening today may have converted out of non-Christian families, and uh, we may have been faced with similar kinds of decisions in the past. Is it okay to visit the Hindu temple? Is it okay to participate in the Qingming festival? Is it okay to participate in a Catholic mass or to eat food that's been offered to the family altar? Is it okay for Christians to participate in the practices of other religions? Uh, well, that is the key question of our passage today. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and uh, we saw last week that the Corinthians had written a letter to Paul asking him a number of issues, uh, uh, questions about issues that were dividing the church. Uh, and we've seen that in chapters 7 to 14, uh, Paul is addressing those questions they've asked, uh, introducing each answer with that phrase, now concerning. So chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Chapter 7, verse 25, now concerning the betrothed. Chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. Chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, and so on. Uh, now, in chapter 7, the questions were, uh, were regarding sex and marriage and singleness, divorce and remarriage. But today, in chapter 8, uh, we come to a, a new section which will run until chapter 14, answering first questions about false worship, chapters 8 to 10, specifically about food sacrifice to idols, and then uh, we'll think about what true worship is in chapters 11 to 14, uh, particularly the, the roles of men and women in church and the proper exercise of spiritual gifts. Now, we'll see also that Paul addresses these issues with great care because he knows they are a divided church. In fact, those issues that divided the Corinthian church, they, they can threaten to divide our churches today. We saw in chapter one, chapters 1 to 4, they were divided, following under their various favourite leaders. And so as Paul answers their questions, he not only wants to address the issues they've raised, but he wants to do it in such a way that he, he holds the church together in unity. And the way Paul does that uh, is what uh, Don Carson calls yes but arguments. Affirming certain truths that some in the church would have believed, but, but then qualifying them with alternative truths that others may have emphasized, and thus bringing a, a deeper, more intricate, 
integrated view of the issue and holding the church together in love despite their differing opinions. And so the issue of this chapter is, as we see in verse 1, food sacrificed to idols. Now concerning food offered to idols. Now we need to remember that the Corinthian church had of course converted out of a pagan culture. And the question was, now that they were Christians, how should they relate to these pagan practices? And in particular, was it okay for them to eat food sacrificed to idols? Because in Corinth, food sacrificed to idols, that was a big issue that was pretty hard to avoid. There were many temples in Corinth, and, and the food that was sacrificed at those temples to idols was then taken and sold at the meat markets. Not only that, but uh, celebrations such as uh, weddings and so on would, would often be held in uh, dining halls attached to these temples. And, and so they would serve food at these gatherings that had been already offered to the God of the temple. And even if you didn't go to the temple or to the market yourself, if you ever went for dinner with a, with a pagan family, then yes, you got it. The food that they served you at home would most likely have been offered to a pagan God. So it becomes a contentious issue. Now that they've become Christians, can they eat food that's been sacrificed to an idol? And some in the church thought the answer was yes, because after all, the gods that pagans worship had no real existence anyway. So it wasn't really idolatry. But others in the church thought that eating such food was idolatrous, a betrayal of their newfound Christian faith. They had to avoid it. And so the church is divided. What's the solution? Should they eat food sacrificed to idols? Or not? Now Paul gives his answer in three parts in a, in a sandwich structure here in chapters 8 to 10. At chapter 8 he begins food sacrificed to idols. Chapter 9 he deals with surrendering our rights. And then chapter 10 he returns to food sacrificed to idols. So we need to remember that today's sermon is really just part one of our answer to this question. But if we were to summarize Paul's answer across these chapters, one commentator does it this way. Do everything out of love for God and people. Restrict the exercise of your rights for the sake of the gospel. Well, let's turn to our passage, and before coming to the issue itself, Paul knows that there's a deeper issue that he needs to address first, and that is point one. We need love and not just knowledge. We need love and not just knowledge, because the deeper problem among the Corinthian church was their intellectual arrogance. Some had the right answer to this question intellectually, but they lacked love in how they were relating to the other Christians in the church. We get a hint in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And that's in quotes because Paul's probably quoting from their letter here. In other words, their justification for eating food sacrificed to idols was the knowledge that they possessed. And, and we'll see in a moment in verses 4 to 6 what that knowledge is. But an idol is just an idol. It's not a real God. There's only one true God, the God of heaven. Now, knowledge like that is clearly a good thing. Uh, it's important that we know who God is and what he's like. It's, in, it's important that we know the truth of the gospel. It's, it's important that we know how the gospel applies in, in different parts of life. Knowledge is good. We should be growing in, in knowledge the longer we're a Christian. But Paul is saying simply knowing something intellectually 
is not enough. And knowledge must always be accompanied by love. We need love and not just knowledge. And that is because mere knowledge by itself, without love, can simply make us proud. And verse 1, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge without love can lead us to be feeling overly inflated, you know, bulging like a, a, a balloon that has way too much air in it. With our knowledge, we think that we are superior to others who don't have the knowledge that we have. And, and that can happen with any knowledge, uh, including our knowledge of the Bible. It's very good to study the Bible deeply, to, to know God more closely, but we don't just study the Bible for knowledge's sake, so that I can proudly think that I'm a better Christian than others because I know this part of the Bible and you don't. But knowledge is good, but it's meant to be used in love to build up other people, not to inflate our own egos. Knowledge to be used, is to be used to strengthen others in their faith, to encourage them in following Jesus, not to make me think that I'm better than others. But more than that, I guess, where, where knowledge is not accompanied by love, it can actually be used to harm someone else. Let's just for example, imagine someone confides a secret to you, or, or, or you know some special knowledge about a decision because you belong to a particular committee. Now, that knowledge can be used for good. But it can also be used to harm other people. So, for example, if you gossip or you use the knowledge to threaten someone else or, 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 or you leak the knowledge when you're not meant to. So real knowledge is more than just about knowing facts, but it's about how to use that knowledge for the good of others. And if we haven't yet worked out how to use our knowledge in love, then we haven't known it properly yet. I think that's what Paul's getting at in verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. There's always more to know. To think you already know all there is to know is supremely arrogant, isn't it? If we know correctly, we'll know that there's more to know than we know now. But even more than that, our pride in our great theological insights can actually make us blind to our faults. We have no love for other people. We haven't known rightly how to use our knowledge with love. So one commentator, Brian Rosner, he, he writes this, True theological understanding, and certainly true knowledge of God, does not lead one to act in a way which is insensitive to others and offensive to God. Another writer, Only when a person has love, can he be said to know as he ought to know? And so therefore true knowledge cannot be separated by love. And so without love, our knowledge will always be incomplete. Because our love will always be imperfect. God is the one who knows fully because he loves perfectly. And the way to be in relationship with him is, is not simply knowing about him, but, but loving him. Now, verse 3, but if anyone loves God... He is known by God. Now, loving God here is not just about uh, feeling nicely about him, but love is about giving him our, our whole-hearted devotion, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which he's alluding to here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. 
But, but Paul really turns this around, doesn't it? It's not quite what we're expecting. We're expecting him to say, if anyone loves God, then he knows God rightly. But he turns it around to, to, to humble the proud Christians like the Corinthians who are puffed up by their knowledge. He says, oh, ultimately, what matters is not our knowledge of God, but his knowledge of us. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And what ultimately matters is that God knows us, and, and that knowing is not just an intellectual knowledge, of course, but, but relationship. See, knowing someone is a relational category. To, to be known by God is to be graciously brought into a relationship with him when once we were his enemy. And so if, if knowing is relational, then of course knowing and loving can never be separated. Because knowing is relational. We need, we need love and not just knowledge alone. So it's worth doing a bit of reflection this morning. Are we becoming proud the more that we know God's word? Or, or, or do we think that we're better than other Christians because we're more mature? You're more in the know. If we've really understood the gospel, we will be humble to acknowledge what we don't know and we'll use our knowledge in love for others, not to puff up our ego. So that's point one. We need love and not just knowledge. And with that principle in place, we now come to the second point. We know that idols have no real existence. We know that idols have no real existence. We see it in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Again, the quotations seem to be the Corinthians' justification for food, for food eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. They say, look, we know that an idol has no real existence, so it's, it's irrelevant whether food has been sacrificed to them or not. They're just... They're just pieces of wood and covered in gold. They're not real gods. Now, of course, Paul certainly agrees that there is only one true God. Idols are not real gods. Whether they're wood and stone or they're, they're concepts that have been made up by the human imagination, it doesn't matter. They, they, they don't correspond to reality. They're a delusion. They're a deception. There is only one God, the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of our Lord Jesus. So Deuteronomy 6 states it so clearly, as we just read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And so Paul reaffirms their statement. Yes, there is only one God. Idols are not real gods. But notice how he recasts it here in the most wonderful of Christian terms to, to assert the full divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. It says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, we see in Deuteronomy 6 that, 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 that the Lord, or, or Yahweh, was God's personal name. But here, notice how Paul affirms 
Jesus is Lord. He describes the Father as the creator and the goal of all things, and he describes the Son in the same terms as the Father, as the creator of all things, the agent of creation. Describes Jesus as the, the mediator who, who brings to fulfillment all of the Father's purposes in creation and redemption. There are many who deny the full divinity of Jesus. But I hope you see it stated so clearly here. There is one God, the Father. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ. The one true God is the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son equal to his Father and fully divine. So Paul certainly agrees with their statement, correctly expressed. Idols have no real existence. There's only one God, the Christian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in that sense, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, there are some things that are intrinsically wrong, like the sexual immorality that he's been dealing with in the earlier chapters. But food sacrificed to idols is not one of those things. I remember what Jesus himself said on this issue in Mark chapter 7. Uh, let me read from verse 18. Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared, All foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So do you see fasting or just not eating particular foods? That, that, that's not something that makes you more spiritual or more holy, and eating it's not going to defile you. But just because it's not intrinsically wrong, doesn't mean that it's necessarily okay to eat it. That brings us to the third point. Not all possess this knowledge. Not all possess this knowledge. It's stated in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Now we must understand the problem is not the food. The problem is that some Christians, though they know there's only one true God, they still act as though idols are real. So verse 7, But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So idols are not real because there are no gods but the one true God. But some Christians... They're called weak Christians here, who've, who've yet to have their conscience fully shaped by the word of God. And so they, they feel as though eating food sacrificed to idols is, is committing idolatry. I mean, imagine that you, you, you've come out of that culture. You've, you, all the time you've been going to the temple, eating food sacrificed, and then you become a Christian. Think that you're betraying your newfound faith, going against your conscience, defiling your conscience. You think you're sinning by eating this food. Now, Paul calls these people uh, people with weak consciences because their conscience has not yet been fully calibrated correctly according to the gospel truth. They're calling something bad when it's not really bad. 
But even though their the conscience on this point was wrong, the correct answer was you, you can eat the food, it, it doesn't matter, it's just food is just food. Paul didn't want to encourage people to go against their conscience. Because that is the very spirit of sin, disobedience. And so what that meant was that although some of the Christians had this true knowledge, they were lacking in love because they were stumbling their weaker brothers who'd not yet come to fully grasp this gospel truth. And, and so they were thereby effectively causing them to commit adultery, encouraging them to worship idols as these people saw them eating and then followed on and ate the food against their consciences. It's, it's not that the gods were anything or, or that the food was anything, but it was about how these new Christians thought about the food. So verse 8, he says, Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat. No better off if we do. And Rosner puts it this way. The problem is not with what the food does to us, but with what we might do with some food. See, the Corinthian church, those with, with the knowledge, they were just thinking about themselves. Not what would please God. Not what would be loving to the other Christians around them. They were proud. They were selfish. Well, that brings us to the final point. We should forgo our rights rather than stumble our brother. We should forgo our rights rather than stumble our brother. We see it in verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now Paul's point in this section is that whether or not an action is objectively allowed by God, we should never do anything that will stumble another Christian. We should trim our rights rather than stumble our brother. An idol might be nothing. Eating food sacrificed to an idol maybe may not matter at all. But that doesn't mean we can eat it if it's going to stumble other Christian brothers and sisters who still think it's wrong because they've not yet fully understood biblical teaching. Now our world today is obsessed with rights, isn't it? the right to vote, the right to marry who I want, uh, the right to safety, and, and so on. We talk a lot about human rights, and, uh, and we put a huge emphasis on protecting human rights. But whilst it's entirely right to act to protect the human rights of others, it's another thing altogether to insist on our rights to the harm of other people. Protecting the rights of other people is loving. Demanding my rights to the detriment of other people. Or oh, that's selfish. And the Christian who has understood the gospel will not be selfish, self-serving. They'll be sacrificial. You see, the exercise of our rights must always be qualified by the gospel priority to love others. And in particular, not to stumble them in the faith. And Paul has in mind here the particular right of uh, eating any food that we want. There was nothing in principle wrong with eating the food sacrificed to idols, except for the way that it affected others. 
Now, let's have a look at verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? So in your heart, you might think, oh yes, eating food sacrificed to an idol is fine, because the idol is not real anyway. But that doesn't mean that other, another Christian does. They might think that it's wrong, and as they observe your behavior, be encouraged to eat it, and thereby commit adultery, uh, idolatry in their hearts. We might not think that's a particularly serious matter. But we need to remember what Paul said back in chapter 6, that idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. Remember that verse 9? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, nor revilers or swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Idolaters don't enter the kingdom. So it matters a lot if you are encouraging someone else to commit idolatry. And I think that's what Paul means in verse 11 when he says that the weak person is destroyed by your knowledge, verse 11. So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. You might think it's just eating food. But actually, by, by claiming your rights, stumbling another Christian... You're stumbling them to the point that they might be going to hell because you're encouraging them to commit idolatry. And that's a serious matter. But so do you see, the loving thing, therefore, to do is to trim your rights, to refrain from eating the food sacrificed to idols, even though it's objectively fine, so that you don't stumble your brother, you don't lead them astray. To do otherwise, to do it anyway, it's because you want to. Well, that will harm your Christian brother and sister. It's unloving. It's sin. It's like, it's like stabbing, murdering their conscience. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Sinning against our brother in such a way is sinning against Jesus. You see, it's not just about our rights, but what is loving to God and loving to others. Jesus didn't stand on his rights. Jesus did not insist on what was best for him. He had every right to. He was the eternal son of God. He was worthy of all adoration and worship. But in love for his father and in love for us, he willingly gave up his rights in, in loving service. He, he laid down his life on the cross. Even though he was right and his executors were in the wrong, he gave them up to save the world. And if that's what Jesus, our Lord, did for us, how can we think that we can simply stand on our rights? Just because we're right and others are wrong when it will cause great harm to them. We should be following Christ and not thinking about how to demand my rights, but how I can love and serve other people, even if it's costly, even if it's inconvenient to myself. That's the conclusion Paul comes to in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, 
I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul says he, he, he'd, he'd rather not eat meat at all. Not because meat is bad. Meat's very good, isn't it? Christians don't have to be vegetarians. But Paul would refrain from eating meat if it was sacrificed to idols so that he wouldn't make his brother stumble. He'd give up his right forever if that was the most loving thing to do for them. And he expects the Corinthians, and indeed he expects us, to think in the same way. To be willing to give up our rights, whatever they may be, for the sake of others. Well, how do we apply this today? Well, in our culture, the eating of food sacrificed to idols may well be a live issue for us right now. Most restaurants in Malaysia do have altars to false gods. Uh, some weddings and funerals are run in temples or halls or attached to other religions. Uh, we still may visit the houses of non-Christians who pray to their gods before setting the food before us. And we may still be faced with the very same issues that Paul has discussed here. And we need to understand that eating such food is not intrinsically wrong, that we shouldn't go against our conscience, and we shouldn't stumble people around us. But these same principles could apply in a myriad of other situations as well. Uh, for example, uh, drinking al alcohol. Now, in many churches in Malaysia, drunkenness is a real issue, uh, even amongst church leaders. Uh, I'm told that in Sarawak, it is one of the primary issues facing the clergy, drunkenness, let alone their church members. It's not uncommon for pastors and their congregations to get drunk in the church building, so I am told. And so because I know that drunkenness is a real sin for many Christians, I've made the, the deliberate decision to never drink alcohol in a public setting, such as a wedding banquet or a funeral or even in the presence of another church member, even in my own home. And that's not because I think drinking alcohol is bad. In private, I'm happy to occasionally have a glass of wine with my dinner. But because I know that many struggle with drunkenness, which is condemned by the Bible, and I don't want to encourage others in any way to think that getting drunk is okay because they observe me, a Christian leader, drinking some alcohol in a public setting. Well, I'd rather refrain from drinking altogether than to stumble another Christian into sin. Do you get the principle? Similar discussions are relevant perhaps to thinking about ancestor worship. It's a complicated issue. There's a lot more we'll have to say about that in chapter 10. But for now at least, we, what we can say is that we should never go against our conscience no matter how much pressure is put on us by our parents. If we feel that doing that action is wrong, we shouldn't do it. And we should never, by our actions, stumble others, for example, by bowing down to a family altar in the presence of other Christians, wounding their conscience by suggesting that it's okay to worship other, other gods apart from Jesus. We can at least say those things from this passage. But there will be more to say when we get to chapter 10. But the same principles could apply in other situations as well. The key principle is this. As Christians, we do not simply stand on our rights. 
We don't use our knowledge for self-benefit. We use our knowledge to serve, to love. We do not simply do things because we're right and they're wrong. We're humble about what we know. And we use our knowledge in love to serve others, not to stumble them. And in all this, we follow the example of the Lord Jesus, who gave up his life for us. So what about you this morning? Will you be proud, self-seeking? Or will you give up your rights and serve others in love? Because that's the Christian way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, that he left the glories of heaven. He laid aside his rights that he might die for us on the cross. We thank you for the freedom, the forgiveness that Jesus has won for us. We pray that we will all be growing in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus and how to live out the gospel in our lives. Pray that you would make our conscience strong as we know the truth. But we also pray that you'd help us to know rightly, to be growing in love, to be using our knowledge in service and not in self-exalting pride. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.